copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to open up with me to Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6. We have a lengthy passage that we're going to read this morning, so patience will be needed. We're going to cover about two chapters of Exodus, just reading before the preaching. Uh, So consider God's uh, Word, uh, consider it worthy of your attention at this time, especially as we start with a genealogy full of names that mean very little to us. Uh, It's God's Word, and it's profitable, so we're going to pick up in Exodus 6, verse 14, and read down through the middle of chapter 8. Let's read. This is God's Word. These are the heads of their fathers, it's talking about Moses and Aaron's fathers' houses. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon, Jamuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their generations, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimei by their clans, the sons of Kohath, Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel, the years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Merari, Mali, and Mushi, which if you're having a kid, that might be one Mushi, a good name, it's a Bible name. These are the clans of their of the Levites according to their generations. Verse 20. Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amram being 137 years. The sons of Izhar, Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. The sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elisphon, and Sithri. Aaron took as his wife Elisheba, the daughter of Amminadab, and the sister of Noshan, and she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, the sons of Korah, Asir, Elkanah, and Abisaph. These are the clans of the Korites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as one of his da- as, as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phineas. These are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites by their clans. These are the Aaron and the Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their host. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am a man of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? We can pause right here and thank God for grace that your pastor didn't ask you to read that genealogy this morning with all of those names. I might have mispronounced a few, and that's okay. There's grace for that. Continuing, chapter 7. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of this land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt, my great acts of judgment. 
The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they also became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to him in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him, and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile." And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff, stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, their canals and ponds and the pools of water, so they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood, and the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink from the Nile. There was blood all throughout the land of Egypt, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Chapter 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go in to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your beds and into your houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, and over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And Pharaoh said, Tomorrow. 
Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh, and the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them just as the Lord had said. Why read that much? The answer is because Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that all scripture, just some of it, even genealogies, are profitable for teaching and training and reproof and correction so that we can be equipped. And when Paul said that, he was talking primarily about the Old Testament because the New Testament had not yet been written and put into the canon. So we read that much, one, because it's God's word, and two, because if not, your kids in elementary school will be graduating before we finish Exodus. So let's look this morning at three truths that we can take out of this passage. There's many more than three truths that I believe we could spend time on, but I want to point you to three that I believe are important to notice. And the first is this. Genealogies in the Bible are profitable. Genealogies in the Bible are profitable. If we're honest, most of us, when we're reading through the Bible and our Bible reading plans, probably get to the genealogies and just kind of skim them, just kind of speed read through them and think, I don't think that God's going to speak to me through this. Right? If we're honest, most of us don't see how those are profitable to our day-to-day lives and trying to be faithful to Jesus. You might even, in, in the book of Exodus that's filled with interesting stories, wonder why would they put one of those old, long family tree genealogies right in the middle? But the reason that genealogies matter in our Bibles is because they connect the story we're reading with the bigger story of the Bible. Every name in a genealogy represents a life that was lived by someone. Some of those names and lives we know very little about, but others remind us of Bible characters and promises God's made in the past. How does your New Testament begin? Matthew 1, with a long genealogy of Jesus connecting him to men like King David and Abraham, whom God had made promises to in the past. Genealogies are family trees that connect the past with the present. And the genealogy here shows us Moses and Aaron's connection within Israel, their connection to Abraham, the father of Israel. We learn from this that their parents, Amram and Jochebed, were actually the grandson and the daughter of Levi. Levi being Jacob's third son and the end of Genesis. This means that Abraham, or I'm sorry, Moses and Aaron are only a few generations removed from men like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. This wasn't thousands of years ago, 10 to 15 to 20 generations ago. Instead, their mother Jochebed likely would have learned about God's promises at the feet of her grandfather Levi. 
or Jacob. Meaning, as, he, as she would have taught Moses and Aaron the great stories of God's promises, it was only a generation removed from those famous stories in Genesis. We also see in this genealogy the names of many of Aaron's descendants who will eventually become prominent in our Bibles. The tribe of Levi will eventually become the priest of Israel, the men who are responsible for the tabernacle and for the sacrifices and for teaching God's people God's word. Some of these names that are listed, names like Korah and Nadab and Abihu and Phinehas, will show themselves in the story of the Bible to be both men of great foolishness and men of great faith, reminding us that not all of God's old covenant people truly love God, but some of them love him fearlessly and do great things for him. We learn in this, these verses that Moses and Aaron are actually in their 80s, meaning that if they were members at Galleon, they would have been coming to our Golden Agers group. Isn't it amazing that it was to Golden Agers that God gave the call to go confront the most powerful man in the world and deliver his people. It's a sermon in and of itself, reminding us that you can retire from a job, but your responsibilities as a Christian are not something that you can retire from. You can't hang it up and say you've paid your dues with the God who made you, sustains you, saves you, and will keep you. He is our Lord from the first moment of our salvation to the last breath of our lives. And we're called to be faithful and serve Him because it might be that His plan for you, the biggest reason that He has for you to do ministry, won't come until you're in your 70s or 80s like He did with Moses and Aaron. There's lots of profitable things in this genealogy that we can learn and we can take away. But I think the main reason that it's included here in Exodus 6 is to historically place Aaron and Moses within Israel's bigger story. God has been making big promises to Moses and he's about to act. And this genealogical information reminds us of who was involved and of when God's greatest act of salvation before the cross of Calvary occurred. Genealogies teach us. They place us within history. They remind us of God's promises in the past and his faithfulness in the future. And because of that, they are profitable, even if our initial response is to speed read through them. That's the first thing I want you to take away this morning. But there's another as we get into the narrative of the text. The second thing that we see in our text is we see God go into attack mode. God goes into attack mode. There's three signs that are given in the text that we just read, but we must remember these are more than just signs. Instead, these are also acts of war. You might wonder, how, how are these acts of war? Well, each of these plagues corresponds to an Egyptian god that the Egyptians would have worshipped. Each of these plagues corresponds to Egyptian gods and shows us that God, the true Lord, Yahweh of Israel, is superior to them all. You might remember last week in Exodus 5 that when Moses and Aaron initially came to Pharaoh, the question he asked is, who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh that I should let Israel go? 
And what we see in Exodus 7 through 12 is that Yahweh is about to answer that question. He is about to make it crystal clear to Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world from a human perspective, who he is. And he's not going to reveal himself and answer Pharaoh's question with a list of his attributes or stories of what he's done in the past. Instead, he will answer Pharaoh's question with a display of power. The Lord will send a clear message that he is, in fact, the only God of all the world, including the Egyptians. And to oppose him, the true Lord, is to court death. Before these plagues begin, Moses and Aaron are asked for a sign for why Pharaoh should listen to them. In chapter 7, verse 10, And Aaron cast down Moses' staff, and it becomes a serpent, most likely a cobra. This is more than a magic trick. This is an act of aggression. This is a call to war. Why? Because Egyptians feared and Egyptians worshipped snakes. When you were growing up in school or if you're still in school now and you look through a history book at ancient Egyptians, what do you see on the head of the king, the pharaoh? It's almost always a headdress, and oftentimes they have an image of a serpent coming off of their head. This was a symbol of Pharaoh's authority. Commentators that I read this week pointed out that the idea with Pharaoh having a, a serpent on his headdress is that Pharaoh, as the king of Egypt and the most powerful man in the world, would terrorize his enemies the way that a cobra will strike fear in her prey. Egypt even built a temple in honor of the snake goddess Wajet. And some Egyptian origin stories about how Egypt came into being taught that the Egyptians received power and blessing and prosperity from none other than a divine serpent. So the serpent, the, the snake, the poisonous snake was reverenced and worshipped in Egypt. And that means that it would be sacrilegious to disrespect the serpent. It was a symbol of Pharaoh and of Egypt's power, of their authority, of their sovereignty and rule and reign. So going into the court of the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, and throwing down a serpent on the ground, was to make the symbol of the king's majesty crawl in the dust. This is a direct insult to his power, to his belief system, to his worldview. Phil Riken writes, to draw a modern comparison as citizens of the United States of America... It would be like taking a bald eagle into the Oval Office in the, pre in the presence of the president and wringing its neck in front of him. This would be a call to war. It's important for us to realize these are not just magic tricks. These are not just random. They are attacks on the false gods of Egypt so that the true Lord can show who he is. But the next sign is also an attack. In verses 14 through 21, we see that the water of the Nile River is changed to blood. We need to remember that the Nile River is why Egypt existed in the first place. 
The Nile River produced a delta of fertilized land so that they could grow crops, so that they would have water to survive on. This was their mode of transportation. The Nile was literally the Egyptians' livelihood. Pastor Tony Morita states that for the Egyptians to not have use of the Nile would be like a catastrophe happening in our day where all of our oil supplies were cut off, the stock market collapsed, all the drinking water was contaminated, and there was no food in the grocery stores simultaneously. It would be chaos. The Nile's importance to the people of Egypt is why they worshipped the Nile. They attributed three different false deities to the Nile, Osiris, Nu, and Hopi. So when Yahweh, the Lord, turns the Nile to blood, he's making Egypt an unlivable place. He's destroying their economy, but he's also showing Egypt that their false river gods are puny and weak when compared to the true Lord. This again is an act of aggression a call to war by the Lord Yahweh who is showing Pharaoh exactly who he is. But there's one more sign in our text. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 6, the plague of the frogs. We've been here in Alabama for about two and a half years. And I've learned many things since being here. One of them is that snakes in Alabama are good at getting into buildings. We found one in our laundry room last year, and I found three, one that was a pretty good size, in the church since I've been here, just roaming around during the day. But when we were in Florida, where we moved before we came here, although there are just as many, if not more, snakes in Florida, our experience was not that snakes would get into your house, it was that frogs would constantly get into your house. They were always coming into your bathroom and through your sinks and toilets and all sorts of things like that. And there were many days where I was busy working at the church and I would get a frantic phone call from my wife requesting that I drop everything to come home to remove a big, scary frog from our home. It got to a point where I eventually had to say, you're going to have to figure this out yourself and put your big girl panties on. You can do it. Dig deep right? One or two frogs in your house is kind of laughable. But imagine if there were thousands. It would be inconvenient. It would be unsanitary. It would be annoying. And if you were scared of frogs, it would be terrifying. But this is exactly what happens in this second of the ten plagues in Egypt. It's easy for us to hear about the frogs and just kind of think, you know, this is God just kind of messing with them. This is kind of a humorous image to think of frogs jumping in the ovens, jumping in the bowls as they're mixing up dinner, jumping everywhere, jumping on them under their covers in bed. It's kind of a humorous plague, but, but the Egyptians actually worshipped frogs. In particular, a goddess, the frog goddess named Heket. Frogs were considered to be sacred because they were symbols of fertility in Egypt, meaning that Egyptians could not kill them. So they might not want a thousand frogs in their house, but they could not harm the frogs to get them out of their house because it would be an attack against one of their false gods. 
So what's happening here is this frog god, Heket, is supposed to be able to have the power to control the frog population and to keep the frogs in the Nile. So when the Lord sends this plague upon them, it's really an act of humiliation to this false god. He's saying, you're not really as powerful as you think you are because you're supposed to control the frog population and I've got them coming in your house and in your beds and coming through your windows and everywhere you can imagine there's frogs. This is once again, what? An act of aggression, a call to war to make sure that Pharaoh and make sure that Egypt knows not to mess with the Lord of Israel, Yahweh. You might ask yourself, how does this truth that God is willing to attack his opponents in these ways, how does that apply to us today? I'm not worshiping a frog God. I don't believe that serpents are made in God's image and worthy of worship. I'm not bowing down and worshiping a river. So how does this this apply? What can we learn from this? think if you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord, you haven't repented and believed in Jesus, you still stand as one of God's enemies in his holy judgment, then it should lead to fear. Because a holy God, the same holy God who sends these plagues on his enemies, Egypt, commands you to trust and to submit to him and will hold you accountable for what you do with that call. But also, if you're here this morning and you are a believer, you have been covered by the blood of Jesus, you've repented and believed in what he's done, it should lead us to ask the question, what in my life is competing with God for supremacy? What God replacements, what idols, what distractions in my life are keeping me from running hard after the Lord Jesus and obeying our King and His commands. The people of Egypt were worshiping false gods, idols. Things in nature that they had attributed divine status to. We might not do it exactly like that. And yet the Bible tells us that we have idols on our hearts, things that we love, things that we trust in more than God, things that we believe will satisfy and give us joy more than God. And in the same way that God is willing to destroy these false gods in Egypt to show His supremacy, our God who is holy will come after our idols. If you're a believer, God is committed to you. He's committed to keeping you, to sustaining you, to preserving you, to saving you, to making you holy, to preparing you for glory. And that means if you're a believer, God will not let you remain content with idols in your life. God will show you again and again and again that the idols and the God replacements that we love more than God, that we're prone to wonder Two, that we trust in more than Him, that they do not satisfy and they can't be trusted, that they're not worth building our lives on. Our God is a God who forgives us, but He also transforms us. He justifies us, but He also sanctifies us, and He's committed to making us holy. So He will go to war with our idols. 
when we find ourselves trusting in our knowledge, our abilities, our giftedness, our comfort, our security, our health, our political power, our plans for the future, or anything else more than we trust in Him, God will show us all of those things in sufficiency in our lives. When our love for good things, like our families, or our jobs, or our money, or man's approval, or our hobbies, or anything else, when our love for things that God has made outpaces our love for God, God will show us that He and not they are supreme. And God will not do this because He is against us. God will not show us the weakness and the impotence and the insufficiency of our idols because He's against us, but because He's for us, because He loves us, because He's for our joy, because our God knows that He alone will satisfy. He knows that He alone is worth trusting in and building your life on, and He will go to war with our idols because He loves us. Like a husband who is jealous for his wife's love and who will not tolerate adultery. God cannot live at peace with our spiritual adultery when we say, I love God the most, but our lives scream, I love the gifts more than the giver. God is for us, not against us. He's for our holiness, for our joy. And that means that our idols are not safe. And that's a good thing. And it's better to lay our idols down at the foot of the cross. It's better to willingly, humbly repent over our idolatry than to have the God who is almighty come after them in his own way. Our God alone deserves glory, praise, and devotion. And he loves us far too much. To not go after our idols. Our text shows us that genealogies are profitable. And that God is willing to go into attack mode. But there's one more thing I want to point out to you this morning. It's found all throughout our text. And that's that we see our enemies idolatrous imitation. We see our enemies idolatrous imitation. Shockingly, whenever Moses and Aaron perform these signs, Pharaoh's magicians can reproduce the signs. They can turn their staves into snakes. They can turn water into blood. They can multiply frogs. And we know and we'll see next week that this ability to imitate and reproduce these things is temporary. They will soon no longer be able to do the things that God is doing. But it still should lead us here to ask the question, how in the world are they able to do this? And the only explanation that makes sense is that through their secret arts, they have somehow tapped into a satanic, evil power. We know that the Bible teaches that Satan is a jealous God. Satan. Satan is jealous of God's power. He wishes that he were God, but he cannot be God. 
We know that he's hungry for worship. He pridefully wants everyone to bow to him and not submit to the true God. We know that Satan is the one who casts mankind into sin in Genesis 3. And Satan's aim after Genesis 3 is to keep God's promise of a head-crushing seed from Eve's family and then from Abraham's family from coming. So what's Satan's goal in the book of Exodus? It's to destroy Israel, and it's to defame God and his reputation. And while Satan is not able to create things out of nothing, while Satan does not have limitless power like God does, Satan is a master of imitating the great things that God does and then taking credit for it. Satan enables these magicians in Egypt to do these signs so that Pharaoh the king will not be impressed by God's true power and will not let Israel go. But notice what happens after each of these imitations. The Lord's cobra swallows up the other serpents. The magicians can change the water to blood, but they can't reverse it and make the blood change to water so that the Egyptians, in order to survive, have to begin to dig for drinking water. The Egyptians, by their magic arts, can make the frogs come up out of the Nile, but they cannot send the frogs back into the Nile. So that at the end of our text, Pharaoh ends up coming to Moses, asking him to relent, promising that if he will, he will let Israel go. These magicians have been empowered to imitate the true work of God, but they are weak in comparison to the real thing. Why? Because the source of their power, Satan, is weak in comparison to the true God. Idolatrous imitation is still present today. Satan's specialty in the Bible, throughout all of history, including today, is to make something sound just right enough that you think it's the real thing. His specialty is to make the fruit taste just sweet enough that you don't notice the poison within that will kill you. How does that play out today? If it looks like a preacher and it sounds like a preacher, it must be a preacher. If they read Bible verses and say Bible phrases, it must be legitimate. If someone has their church on TV, if they have a following, if they have a publisher for their writing, it must be the real thing, right? There are many wolves dressed in sheep's clothing today. Satan's too smart to show you who he really is, and to show you what he's really doing. If he came in the form of a predator, of a wolf, if he came and said, there's poison in this, go ahead and eat it, then nobody would eat it. And everyone would stay away from the wolf, but when it's dressed like a sheep, when it looks delicious, but there's poison within, many will run after it and not notice the difference until it's too 
late. He hides the poison and he hides the predator's fangs by mingling his false gospel of death with half-truths, big personalities, smiling faces, and seemingly successful ministries. But verses that are ripped out of their original context in order to tickle your ears and make you feel good about yourself Messages that are all about you and not about our God who is holy and righteous. Theology that makes you the hero of your life instead of Jesus. And books that are merely self-help guides making false promises and offering false solutions teach us that imitation of the real thing still exists today. When you're told to name it, claim it, and it will be yours, you can speak things into existence if you just believe them enough. God is promising you health, wealth, and prosperity. Then you you are experiencing an imitation of the real thing. When you find that sin is no longer called sin, biblical truth is ignored, and a person's storytelling, their passion, their personality outshines the message that they preach. Know that there is a predator among you who is dressed as a sheep. When someone's statement of faith reveals that they don't know who Jesus truly is, don't see sin as our biggest problem, don't view God as holy and righteous and misunderstand the finished work of Jesus and the heart of the gospel, preaching that you can be saved by what you do, know that there is poison within that message. Friends, books on the bestseller list, massive crowds at televised services should not make us put our guard down to the possibility that idolatrous imitation is among us. We should not find ourselves thinking, well, if all these people trust them, then I can too. I believe it was our Savior Jesus that taught in the Gospels that the gate is wide that leads to destruction. Idolatrous imitation is why men and women like Joel Osteen, Benny Hinn, T.D. Jakes, Paula White, Joyce Meyer, Creflo Dollar, Kenneth Copeland, and a million others who are on TBN preaching false messages all across our country and our world are in business today. Not everything they say is bad. They're good communicators. They're passionate. They're clear. But the heart of their message The heart of their gospel is not Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I'm not talking about us calling everyone who doesn't believe every little thing that we believe a false teacher. I'm not talking about calling someone a false teacher who believes something different about the end times or about God's sovereignty or about baptism or about denomination. No, 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 no. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when the heart of the gospel is not that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man, that we are sinners, that God is holy, and that salvation can only come by belief in Him, and that God's plan is to sanctify you and prepare you for glory, not to make everything in your life perfect. That is a different gospel when people do not affirm and proclaim those thing, when your belief about God's purposes and his character and who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and what God's purposes and promises for your life are wrong, then the gospel is at stake. But when they look 
and sound like preachers and when they call what they do ministry so that the masses follow them and buy their books and repost their quotes, it's easy to think this must be real. This idolatrous imitation is also why Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, and Roman Catholics have such a following today as well. Because they quote Bible verses, they meet in buildings that look like churches, and they're usually good, moral people who say right-sounding things. But the heart of their message is truth mingled with dangerous error, missing who Jesus is and trusting that faith in Jesus plus my good works will make me right before God. The same message that is at the root of every false religion that has ever existed. And in our day, where so many do not know their Bibles, and in our day, where our culture teaches us that tolerance is the highest virtue, and in our day, where people care more about getting butts in the pews than about being faithful to preaching the gospel, we begin to get uncomfortable with discussions about false teachers, preferring instead to stay silent and to think, why are we being so serious and judgmental here? We just need to be positive and encouraging like Caleb and coexist with everybody. But friends, sheep who play with wolves die. And people who eat and drink poison die. And Satan is still in the business of imitating the truth to deceive the nations. Just like he imitates God's work in the plagues. When we consider that there is a holy God who stands against his enemies who love their idols more than him. When we consider that there is a holy God who is willing to make war on our idols that we are all prone to run after. And when we consider that we have a great enemy who 1 Peter 5 says is prowling around like a lion seeking to devour. Whose power is that of deception and accusation. Who is looking to deceive and to destroy us. When we consider that the holy God stands against our sin and is willing to make war on our idols and the great enemy of God also stands against us not by trying to get rid of our sin but by trying to lead us into sin what hope do we have how can God's judgment against our sin and Satan's destructive deception be avoided and the answer lies not in a thing but in a name Jesus Christ the answer lies in our text and what it points us forward to, our Savior and Lord Jesus. Because in the same way that in Exodus 7 we read that the Lord's cobra swallows up the other serpents, we know that a day is coming in a few chapters in Exodus 14 where all of God's enemies, the Egyptians, who have fallen for idolatrous imitations and have refused to bow the knee to the Lord will be what? They will be swallowed up. 
in the rushing waters of the Red Sea. And these judgments in the book of Exodus point us forward to a greater still coming judgment when all idols and all imitators will be destroyed and will be swallowed up by God's judgment, fully and finally. Only those who believe in the promises of God, only those who hide beneath the shed blood of the Passover lamb will not be swallowed up by God's judgment. In the book of Exodus, every time that the phrase swallowed up is used, it refers to someone facing God's judgment. But this is the good news. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, quotes the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 25, and he says this, Death has been defeated. Death has been what? Swallowed up in victory. Death, our consequence for our sin. Death, our judgment that we deserve for rebelling against God in Genesis 3 and in our lives has been defeated and swallowed up in victory. How? Because one has come, a seed of Eve, a seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a seed from the line of Judah, a seed from David and Solomon's family, a seed named Jesus Christ who never fell for the idolatrous imitations that we are all prone to fall for, a seed who perfectly obeyed God's law. Jesus Christ has come and as one who deserved God's eternal blessing instead faced God's judgment and wrath, shedding his blood and facing the judgment we deserve in our place as our substitute and that same Jesus swallowed up death in victory. How? By overcoming the grave, defeating sin and death and hell and Satan on Easter Sunday when death could not contain him anymore. And the Bible tells us that those who repent and believe in him alone, trusting in his finished work alone, who bow the knee to him as Savior and Lord, need not fear being swallowed up by the judgment of God, like the snakes in Exodus 7 and like the Egyptians in Exodus 14. Why? Because Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, has already been swallowed up for us. For the believer, death is defeated. Our penalty is paid. Our powerlessness against sin and temptation has been broken and with our eyes fixed on the Savior, with our lives submitted to His Word, and with our efforts empowered by His Spirit, we must make war with our idols. Clinging to God's truth, we must wield the sword of the Scriptures so we can conquer the deception and the imitation that is all around us. We must know the Gospel. We must know our Bibles. We must be led by the Spirit. We must be discerning so that we will not fall prey for idolatrous imitations. And because of Jesus Christ, we are empowered to do just that. We still have an enemy, Satan, but as believers in Christ, we know that he is a vanquished foe. We know that our victory has already been won. We know that our Savior will one day return and he will finally finish crushing our enemy's head. 
the question that remains for us as we consider this glorious news of the gospel is do I believe that gospel of Jesus Christ, the true gospel, and am I willing to live like it by running hard after Christ, putting sin to death, and making war with my own false gods. By God's power and at God's prompting, my prayer for myself and for you is that your answer to those questions will be yes this morning.